Perhaps you heard uh, recently of a boat off of Vancouver Island that was filled with tourists that were watching for whales. And that boat tragically capsized. Uh, Five people lost their life. One is still missing. It's just a very sad story. But some good things came of that story, some encouraging things. One is all the people that rallied to help when the distress call went out that this boat has capsized. People, fishermen and others in the area began to come to the scene and to pull people out of the water. And many were rescued because so many rallied to help. And I read one account of a man and his wife that were in a boat and they heard the call and they uh, raced to the scene. And they pulled several of the passengers from the capsized boat out of the water, rescued them, took them back to shore. Now, the amount of time that that man and his wife were around these folks uh, that were pulled from the water was relatively short. They were just with them just for a few moments. They pulled them into the boat. They got them back to shore. But I would submit to you that their impact was long-term. They only knew them for a short period of time. But they made a major difference in their life because their lives were saved. And I want to just share with you this morning from God's Word how a short-term trip can have long-term impact. And I want you to see this in Acts chapter 13. So turn there with me, Acts chapter 13. As we continue our study in the book of Acts, we've been in a sermon series titled, The King and His Kingdom. Uh, We finished that last week, and we're back in Acts. It's the first time we've been in Acts since the middle part of September. And we're going to pick up right where we left off, Acts chapter 13, verse 4. And we're going to walk through Acts through the month of November. And uh, then we're going to take another break from Acts and do some things uh, in December related to Christmas. Excited about that. But this morning we're in Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 4. I'd like to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they, and this is Barnabas and Saul, sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, notice, immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. 
Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are grateful for this opportunity to gather as a faith family and to proclaim your greatness in song and to be still in these moments and listen to you speak to us through your word. And so, God, I pray that you would move with power in our midst. Holy Spirit of God, I ask you to open the eyes of our hearts, help us to see the truths of Scripture, and help us, Lord, to grasp them and, and have the, the desire to live according to them. Lord, change our lives today. Would you do that by your grace and for your glory? Lord, above all, I pray that the strong and precious name of Jesus will be lifted up in this place. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We're so grateful for Jesus today and his finished work, his saving love, his resurrection power that is operative in our midst right now. Lord, would you just... Bless this time. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Our text this morning describes the beginning of a missionary journey. And this missionary journey begins with a short-term mission trip. Uh, Saul and Barnabas journey from the church in Antioch, sent out by the Holy Spirit to go to many places, but they begin with a short stint on an island in the Mediterranean uh, called Cyprus. And they're only there for a limited amount of time. Notice what it says in verse 4. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they, that's Barnabas and Saul, went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So they, they get to Cyprus, arrive at Salamis, they proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews... They had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician. And so they get to Cyprus, travel from Seleucia to Paphos. And look what it says over in verse 13 of the same chapter. After they spent some time there on that island called Cyprus, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. So they left the island of Cyprus and went to the mainland crossing the Mediterranean once again. And so I want you to see that they were only on Cyprus for a short period of time. And yet I'm going to show you that they had long-term impact. And I'm going to encourage us to think about the potential and the power of short-term mission trips. This is a big deal because our church invests a lot of resources and a lot of time Sending groups out all over the nation, all over the world. Taking time to to go and do ministry in a certain area. Sharing Christ, encouraging believers, training believers, and serving the Lord for the sake of the gospel. And the question is, is that a good application of our resources? Should we spend money sending people all around the world? Should we take our time to get on planes and, and, and travel across the ocean to, to spend a time uh, for the gospel in some area of the world. Should we be doing that? There's some in Christianity that think that short-term mission trips are a waste of time. Are they a waste of time? Can short-term trips have long-term impact? Well, the passage this morning answers that question. As we walk through this text, I want to just highlight four aspects of this mission trip. They're just on Cyprus for a limited amount of time. And I want to highlight four aspects of that time as we answer the question, does God 
want us to go on short-term mission trips? Can short-term mission trips be a viable part of our strategy to reach the world? So notice four things here. Number, number one, I want you to notice the team. The team that went on this journey and spent time in Cyprus. Notice what it says there in verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. Who is the they? Well, if you back up to earlier in the chapter, it says in verse 2 that the, the church in Antioch was worshiping and, and fasting before the Lord, and the Holy Spirit said in that gathering, set apart for me two of their Bible teachers, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the first member of the team is Barnabas. Barnabas. And, and it tells us that in verse 2. And that might give us a clue as to why they went to Cyprus first. Because earlier in Acts we learn that Barnabas, who played a major role in the expansion of the church, he was an encourager that spoke life into the church. Uh, uh, Barnabas was from Cyprus. That was his hometown, his home island, if you will. And so that probably answers the question, why did they leave Antioch and go to Cyprus first? Well, they went there because that was Barnabas' hometown. And undoubtedly, he probably said, hey, let's go to my folks first and, and share the gospel in that area. And so Barnabas is the first member of this team. The second member is Saul. It says there in verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Now, you know who Saul was. You can go back to Acts chapter 9 and read about Saul. Saul was a Pharisee a persecutor of the early church in the first century. He wanted to stamp out Christianity entirely. And one day, as he was headed to Damascus to arrest some Christians and throw them into jail, the risen Lord Jesus encountered him on that road with a bright, shining light. Uh, Saul was overwhelmed with the presence of Christ and, and surrendered to him in that moment as Lord and became a follower of Jesus and instead of being a persecutor of the church that wanted to stamp out Christianity, he became a missionary in the church that wanted to spread Christianity. An amazing story of conversion. And here, in this text, Saul is leaving Antioch, where he'd spent about a year teaching the Word of God. And he's going out to, to people that have never heard about Jesus to share the gospel. And so, Barnabas is on the team, and Saul's on the team. Third, John Mark's on the team. Look what it says down in verse 5. Because when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. This is John Mark. Uh, John Mark is a cousin to Barnabas. You can read about that over in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. And we also know that, that uh, John Mark's mother's home was a gathering place for the believers in Jerusalem. She had a, a church that met in her home, and so they're closely affiliated with the with the ever growing, ever expanding early church. And Barnabas and Saul take John Mark along to assist them, thinking this would be a good trip for John Mark to go on. He can help us. He can learn. He can grow. Let's take John Mark. He's the third member of the team. But the fourth member of the team I want you to see is the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch. Look what it says in verse three. After fasting and praying, they, these, these are the church members in Antioch, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. A little bit later in the service, we're going to lay our hands on a group of people that are headed to the Middle East to do ministry to refugees. And we're going to lay hands on them and send them off in a very similar manner. And so the church in Antioch is supporting this missionary endeavor. 
The church in Antioch is commissioning this missionary endeavor. They are praying over them, sending them out. They are a vital part of the team. So notice how this team comes together. Barnabas, Saul, John Mark, the church in Antioch. And they together are being used by God to expand the gospel in the world. And this reminds us of a very important reality. Here it is. You ready? Missions is a team effort. Missions is a team effort. We all have a role to play, don't we? And we, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, are to discern that role, follow Jesus wherever he leads, and as we work together, it's amazing what God can do through a body of believers. One of the favorite books I've read this past year is a book titled Boys in the Boat. It's a story about rowing, which is a sport I knew very little about. All the boats I've ever been on had motors on them. But I read about this this team of rowers uh, that attended the University of Washington. And what's interesting about these, these young men that came together in the 1930s is they all came from very humble working class backgrounds. Uh, to that point, rowing was a sport for the wealthy. It was a, a, a sport for uh, the aristocrats. And, and, and it was very unusual to have young men from you know, humble, ordinary, working class backgrounds to be good rowers. But these young men came together at the University of Washington. They began to win. They began to win event after event until they actually qualified for the 1936 Olympic Games held in Berlin, Germany under the watching gaze of the evil Adolf Hitler. And it's the story of these, these young men coming together as a team and going to the limit. I won't tell you how it ends. Read the book. It's a great book. Uh, it's a thrilling book. But what jumped out at me from this book is the teamwork, the synchronization required to be good. I mean, the, the nine men had to come together and be on the same page and work together at the same rate, on the same pace, with the same goal. And, and the teamwork of these nine men was nothing short of extraordinary. So nine ordinary young men from, from again, working class families did extraordinary things because of teamwork. And guess what? A group of ordinary folks like we have in this room, starting with your pastor, if we work together under the leadership of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God, we can accomplish extraordinary things for the sake of the gospel. Amen? Extraordinary things. And so we see that in this text, the, the team of this short-term mission trip. But secondly, I want you to notice the trials. This was not easy. Missions is not easy. Short-term trips are not easy. Notice the trials that happen here. And I want you to answer this question. How do we know there are trials? How do, you, how do we know it was hard? Well, fast forward down to verse 13. Verse 13 The Bible says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. So they left Cyprus, headed towards Asia Minor. But they, what, they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, verse 14. But notice what it says at the end of verse 13. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So John Mark, who was recruited to go on this short-term trip with Barnabas and Saul, left. And we know that his departure was not scheduled because over in Acts chapter 15, when 
Barnabas and Saul go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas wants to take cousin John again. And Saul says, no, he abandoned us the first time. We're not taking that quitter with us again. And, and, and Barnabas and Saul actually split ways at that point. We'll, get, we'll talk about that when we get there and second chances and all that. We've got some good stuff when we get there. But what's interesting to note is Saul saw John's departure as defection. When the going got tough, John went home. And the reason why John went home? Because it was hard. It was difficult. He didn't want to go any further. We don't know exactly what the issue was, but we know there were trials. And as we study this passage in Acts 13, we can begin to see what the trials might have been. The first trial is the trial of logistics. Logistics. In other words, it was just hard to move around in the first century. And logistics are still a challenge for missions today. The places we need to get to sometimes are very difficult to get to. And so to give you a feel for how rigorous the travel was that Saul and Barnabas and John Mark are involved in, let me just walk you through the different places they went and give you sort of a, uh, a tour of this, this first part of the journey. Look what it says in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. So they leave Antioch and go to Seleucia. So wait, how far is that? That is about 16 miles. They left Antioch, went down to the port city right on the Mediterranean of Seleucia, about a 16-mile journey on foot. You say, wait, no big deal. When's the last time you walked 16 miles? Big deal. This is a good little walk, right? And this is just the beginning. They get to Seleucia, and the Bible says, from there they sailed to Cyprus. That was a 130-mile trip by boat. And there weren't motors. 130-mile boat trip. Think about that. That's a long journey through the, the, the Mediterranean Sea. And then when they got to Salamis, that port city in Cyprus on the northeast corner, they journeyed to Paphos, which is on the southwest corner of the island. That was a 90-mile journey. Walking across Cyprus, 90 miles. And then when they left Paphos to head towards the mainland, they went on a 175-mile journey again by boat. That's pretty rigorous, isn't it? And this was just the beginning of Paul's first, mercenary, uh, Paul's first missionary journey. It's just the beginning. They had a lot more to go. We'll see that as, as Acts unfolds. And so notice here that logistics are a very real challenge. Just getting to where they needed to go was tough. And there's still logistical challenges today. If you look there in your notes... There are logistical challenges to get the gospel to every people group, but there are challenges that we must endure and overcome. Why do we need to fight through the challenges of travel? Because, as David Platt says, the unreached are unreached for a reason. The people in this world that are far from God, who have not heard the gospel, most of them are in very hard-to-reach places. So if we're going to get to them and share the gospel with them, it's going to be rigorous. It's going to be hard. But we've got to endure it. And we've got to take it on. Because people are dying and going to hell, and they're in desperate need of the gospel, right? I remember my first Trans-Pacific flight. We were headed with a short-term team to... 
Burma. And we were leaving L.A., headed to Tokyo. It was going to be about a 13-and-a-half-hour flight by plane, longest time I would have ever spent at that time on a plane. So I was kind of dreading it, you know, 13-and-a-half hours on a plane. And I, I got on the plane with the team, and I noticed that, that the team all found their seats and were sitting down together. My ticket was farther back in the plane. So everybody's sitting there and chatting and having a big time, and I just keep on walking. And I keep on walking, and I keep, I'm almost the very back of this huge plane right by the bathrooms. And I have a middle seat, listen to this, a middle seat between a husband and a wife that did not want to sit together. I sat down and said, do you want to sit together? Said, no, no, no. And they spoke another language. And their family members were all around us, and they all spoke another language. And have you read the experience when you know people are talking about you? Like, they were speaking another language, and they'd all laugh. And I didn't know what they were saying, but I knew they were talking about me. And I was on the point of panic. I'm sitting here in this seat, man on my right, woman on my left, don't want to sit by each other. And I'm, 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 I'm stuffed in the seat. I have my, my pack in my lap. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And the plane took off, and I kind of dozed for a minute, and I got a tap on my shoulder. And it was Tommy McDonald on our team. He said, we found a seat for you up here. And he was like an angel from heaven. He really was. When, when, when he said that, it was so good. I went back up there with the team. I sat with them. Everything turned out good. But listen, that is a hard flight. 13 hours is a hard flight, isn't it? And that was just the first leg. There was more to go after that. A lot of the places we go are difficult to get to, but we've got to be able to endure the challenges of logistics because people need to hear the gospel. So the first challenge here is logistics. The second challenge is spiritual warfare. Notice what happens when Saul and Barnabas and John arrive in Cyprus. They proclaim the word to the Jews in the synagogues in Salamis, which was their custom. We'll see as they travel throughout the world, they go to the synagogue first to share the gospel. But then they travel 90 miles to Paphos, the southwest corner of the island. And it says in verse 6, when they arrived, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, sort of the governor, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, he calls him by a different name here, but that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And so we see here that as they come into Paphos trying to share the gospel with this very important man, Sergius Paulus, this leader in Cyprus, they are opposed by this magician false prophet. So why would this man oppose Barnabas and Saul? Well, look what it says in verse 9. Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. That's straight talk, right? You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? In other words, Saul says to him here, the reason you are resisting us and the spread of the gospel is because you are controlled by the devil. You're a son of the devil. That's why you're trying to stop us. This is very real spiritual warfare. Kingdoms are colliding. The kingdom of light is colliding with the kingdom of darkness. 
and warfare ensues. What can we learn from that? We learn that we can expect opposition from the enemy. Satan does not easily give up ground. When people who are lost and in bondage start to hear the gospel and consider Christ and give their lives to him, Satan is worked into a frenzy and by all means wants to stop the advance, the spread of the gospel. So when you go to some place in the world that has very little gospel witness, you can expect spiritual warfare, and it's real. And guess what? When you go across the street to talk to your neighbor, you can expect spiritual warfare. And when you try to represent Christ in your school, you can expect spiritual warfare. When you try to represent Christ in your family, you can expect spiritual warfare. Satan does not easily give up ground. So, you and I, we must be prepared for opposition from the enemy. We've got to be prayed up. We've got to have our focus right. We've got to be vigilant. We need to be walking with Christ because spiritual warfare is real. And we need to be ready to face it in the power and the strength of Christ. I read a story that came out last week in Christianity Today. It's really a testimony written by a lady named Emily Armstrong. And she tells her story of being far from God. She was an adherent of the Baha'i religion. And she was living in immorality, far from God, far from Christ. Did not care about the things of Christ. She uh, moved in with her uh, boyfriend. They were living together, which is a sin. They were living in that immorality just not caring about the things of God. One day, uh, a, a couple that knew this couple came to them and invited them to an Alpha course. An Alpha course is a 10-week course that walks people through the, the basic doctrines of the faith. And so at first, uh, this, this uh, woman, Emily Armstrong, and, and her boyfriend, they said, we're not going to spend 10 weeks doing that, but they went. And then they went again. And they went again. And they went all ten weeks hearing an explanation of biblical Christianity. And then Emily and her boyfriend decided, you know what, we've heard all this. We need to read the Bible for ourselves. So they both began to read the Bible. And according to her words, here's what she said. That's when the weird stuff started to happen to us. When they began to read the Bible, weird things started to happen. Wait, wait, what kind of weird things? Well, listen, she writes, Over several weeks, I received a preponderance of unknown number hang-up calls. Aaron and I would wake up in the middle of the night, scared to leave the room. Aaron started waking up with scratches on his body. At times, we both felt like there was someone else in the house. One night, I woke up to see Aaron half-risen from bed like someone was pulling him up by his left shoulder. Go away, I whispered. I shut my eyes and tucked deep into the covers, wishing that the terror would stop. Later, Aaron would tell me he didn't turn to me, but I saw him turn over and look at me, only it wasn't his face. I screamed and pressed my face to the bed. I was going crazy. No, I was already crazy. I was going to die here in this room from fright or end up in a psychiatric hospital. But in that moment, she writes... Despite the terror, I understood that Jesus was my hope. So there in the bed, I pleaded with God to save me. And she was born again. And then her boyfriend, Aaron, called out to Christ. And he was born again. 
And then they went to the pastor and said, we want to be right with God. And they were married and started to do things God's way and are faithfully serving Christ. Amazing story of, of conversion. But how do you explain all those, those strange things happening? They go through the Alpha Course. They're, they're reading the Bible. And all of a sudden, there's this oppression, this demonic oppression tormenting them. Why? When they started to consider Christianity, the demons threw a fit. That's what was happening. And that's what's happening here in Acts 13. When Sergius Paulus begins to consider Christianity, the demonic realm begins to throw a fit. Spiritual warfare. We must be ready. So we see here the the team and the trials, but third, very quickly, I want to just say a word about the tools. Barnabas and Saul were not unequipped to make a difference. Even though there were hardships and challenges, they had some powerful tools God had placed in their hands. So what are the tools at their disposal and at our disposal when we seek to go somewhere to share the gospel? Number one, the power of the Spirit. Did you notice what it said in verse 4? They were sent out by the Holy Spirit. And in verse 9, when, when Saul is, it was, is encountered by this magician, this false prophet who's a son of the devil. Look what it says in verse 9. It says that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, Mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. God had the final word, amen? But it's the power of the Holy Spirit, allowing allowing Saul to speak with this authority. God moves to blind this false prophet, so his, his influence is minimized. The power of the Spirit. So why do we need the Holy Spirit? Well, if you look there in your notes, he gives us direction. They were sent out by the Spirit. He gives us wherewithal, the desire to follow him. He gives us courage, and he gives us authority over the enemy. That's what we see here in this text. But listen, also, the Holy Spirit draws people to Jesus. Did you notice what it said in verse 7? Look in verse 7. It says, He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intellect, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. This governor of Cyprus wanted to hear the Bible. Now, how do you square that with Romans 3 that says, no one seeks after God? Why is this man seeking after God when no one seeks after God? You know why? Because the Holy Spirit had done a work in his life to draw him to himself. And show him that he needed to hear what these men had to say. So in his own in, in his own. Um, in his own life, he was not seeking after God, but when the Holy Spirit began to work, he began to want to hear what these men had to say. The Holy Spirit is the one that, that draws people to Christ. So we need him as we go out. We need the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit is a tool in our hands. He is the one who empowers us to go and make a difference for the glory of Christ. The, here's the second tool, the power of the Word of God. Look in verse 5. It says, they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And then in verse 12 it says, the proconsul believed. Why? When he saw what had occurred, he saw the 
the false prophet blinded supernaturally. That got his attention. But look what really astonished him. It says, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So Barnabas and Saul go into this area, and they share the word of God, and God moves, doesn't he? There, listen, and I want you to hear this. There is power in the word of God. We see it here. He, he's astonished. He's astonished. And here's the deal. No matter where you go, across the street, around the world, in your school, in your neighborhood, no matter where you go, the message of grace found in the gospel will be astonishing. Because people will never hear the message of grace in any other world religion. Every other world religion, worldview, cult is about working your way to God. But the gospel is a message of grace that says you can't work your way to God. You're a sinner that is far from God. You've rebelled against God. You deserve punishment. But but God sent his only son to take your punishment for you. And not only did he take your punishment for you and die on the cross, he rose from the grave and he's alive today and he's mighty to save. And through his son Christ, God offers you the free gift of eternal life. You don't achieve it. You receive it as a gift. It's a message of grace and it is astonishing. No matter where you go, people will be astonished by grace because they're not hearing it anywhere else. Say in the word of God. The Spirit of God, the the Word of God. But third, we see they had the power of a changed life. Did you notice what it said in verse 9? I love this. Verse 9, it says, But Saul, who was also called, what? Paul. And here's what's interesting. From this point on in the book of Acts, the word or the name Paul is used. There's a change right here in this verse. Saul, who's also called Paul. Now, why did Luke even highlight that the one formerly known as Saul was now being called Paul? Why did he bring that up? I believe because it was because his name change represented his spiritual change. His name change represented he was a new man in Christ. And so instead of the old Saul, now he's the new Paul. He's a new man. Instead of persecuting the church, he's he's serving the church. His life had been radically transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the deal. For everyone in this room that's been born again, listen. Here's the deal. Our transformed lives are a message to a watching world. When we go and share the good news about Jesus and people see in our lives the difference that Jesus Christ makes, that is powerful. Because people can argue with theology, they can argue with your worldview, they can argue with what you have to say, but people can't argue with a changed life, can they? And so Saul, now known as Paul, comes riding into town, filled with the Spirit, teaching the Word of God, and showing people a transformed life. Tools that make a difference. So you and I need to make sure that as we go out to share Christ, we have the right tools in our hands to get the job done. But there's one final thing I want you to see. We've talked about the team and the trials and the tools, but fourth and last, I want to just say a word about the triumph. The triumph. When the gospel is shared in the power of the Spirit, two things happen. Number one, seeds are planted. Back in verse 5 it says, 
they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now there's no mention here of conversion. There's no mention of, of anyone getting saved as they proclaimed the gospel in the synagogue. But guess what? Seeds were planted. They left, but those Jews had some things to consider about Christ as Paul showed them that Christ is the Messiah. And not only were seeds planted, but people get saved when we go forth in the power of the Spirit. Look what it says in verse 12. Then the proconsul what? What's the word? Okay, look in your Bible. All right, verse 12. Then the proconsul what? Believed. He got saved. Amen? He got saved. And we go forth to share the gospel and the power of the Spirit. Seeds will be planted. And guess what? People will get saved. That's how God works. This quote from Nick Ripkin is challenging and convicting. I came across it just recently. Nick Ripkin says, The only places on the globe people aren't coming to Christ are the places we refuse to go. Think about that. Places that are hard to get to. Maybe a, a government that doesn't want you there. And so because of fear or because of the challenges, we just don't go. And if no one's there sharing the gospel, guess what? People aren't getting saved, are they? Seeds aren't being planted. But when we do go and we do share, we will see God by His grace and for His glory saving people. And planting seeds in the hearts of folks that need Jesus. That's the triumph of going. That's the triumph of of being in a place just for a short time. But God can use you in a place just for a short time, can't he? So here's the point. Short-term trips can have long-term impact. I would submit to you that it's right that we send teams out. And we're going to keep doing it. I think it's biblical. We're going to keep sending people out. Because it's important that we try to engage these areas for the glory of Christ. Short-term trips can have long-term impact. So let's, uh, let's work together. Let's, let's send continually. Let's go consistently. Let's be a church that gets out of sight of our four walls. And goes to the lost in our community and the lost in our world and shares The only message of grace. And God can use us in amazing ways.